Today's scripture passage comes from the Gospel of John between the Thursday evening last supper and the dark night of the Garden of Gethsemane. It's part of Jesus' farewell address, and it's no short speech. It goes from chapter 14 all the way to chapter 17, so we won't read the whole thing today. As Jesus faces what he knows will be a certain death, he clings uh, to his, he desperately wants his disciples, that is, to cling to their faith. He wants them to have faith and not despair, to have hope and not fear. Jesus wants them to know that he goes willingly to face the violent places of the world and that his life will be for them. Courage in the face of danger, life in the midst of death, promise in the face of likely persecution. And Jesus tries to get across to his notoriously thick disciples that he will remain with them, that he will go ahead of them, that he remains in their presence even when he's gone. He promises them the Holy Spirit and that love must remain at the core of what they do. And at the end of this farewell address, Jesus prays. Like a rock that gets caught up in the push and the pull of waves crashing on the beach, the theme of unity is rolled forcefully through this prayer, as if Jesus just can't reiterate enough how much his disciples and anyone who comes to believe later should be people of unity collaborators, people standing in solidarity with one another, people who avoid strife and discord, who are of one mind together. And as you know, such unity was lost on those who followed Jesus. This year, we celebrate the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation. And while we might call it a story of reform, moving toward a more holy and pure vision of how Jesus called us to live, it was also, a, in part, the very thing that Jesus prayed wouldn't happen. It was a falling out. It was a messy embodiment of the conflict that Jesus warned against. Yeah, before the Reformation, there were splits too, Catholic and Orthodox, Marianite and Coptic, Nubian and Martoma. But the Reformation caused such disunity and division, such quarreling and arguing, feuding and conflict and violence, Christian against Christian, that it's difficult to say exactly what a Reformation-era Christian might think of religion in America today. Amid the divisions that happened as a result of the Reformation, the Congregationalists have their own divided history. And that's what we're going to look at today, the history in our Congregationalist window, Robert Brown and Jonathan Edwards and Henry Ward Beecher. Today, there are many congregations that claim these reformers as their own, included, including the United Church of Christ, where I was baptized. It is a denomination that was formed with unity at its core, it was an attempt in the 1950s, at least, to undo some of that bickering and schism and disagreement that the Reformation era left in its wake. At its core, it's a church that sought unity, and so are we. In a fragmented world, it turned back to Jesus' ancient farewell prayer and said that its central message for us is from John 17, that they may all be one.
So as we consider our congregational window today, our scripture lesson is simply that. Jesus' prayer for his disciples and for all of us, that they may all be one. Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Scattered across my house are three white chairs. They are too short to be anything but awkward at the dinner table. Eat down here. They are too straight-backed to be comfortable in the living room. And there is too much clutter when they're just lined up next to each other. But I hold on to them for sentimental reasons. Somehow, decades ago, when my grandmother's tiny church in Crawfordsville was doing some renovation, kind of like we just did, she bought the church's old chairs, the ones up front for the pastors and the deacons to sit in during worship, and the church bought new chairs. These old chairs meant something to her. They connected her to that church, to that spiritual heritage, to that place. And so I keep those chairs um, in that same spirit. My parents were part of this little church in Crawfordsville, Indiana, that's part of a teeny tiny denomination called the Disciples of Christ. It was formed in the 1800s as an attempt also to establish unity, Christian unity, after so much division in the post-Reformation era. I was dedicated there as a baby in a service of blessing, and my spiritual beginnings are there in that place called to unity. My earliest memories of church, however, are from the United Church of Christ, this, another church of unity, a church in Midland, Michigan, where I was baptized and where I grew up. The church was right next door to my elementary school, um, not so close that they were actually connected, but to me, school and church were one and the same, and in my kindergarten mind, I very well thought that Maybe there was a secret passageway hitching them together underground, and maybe, maybe there is. I, I don't know. I've not checked. I vividly remember Sunday school in the room with the purple door, a strong enough memory that yesterday I checked their website to see if they might have a photo of their Sunday school rooms. And sure enough, all the rooms to this day have colored doors. The blue room, the red room, the purple room, the rainbow room. It's kind of a lot easier, right? Instead of room 126 or room 34, find the blue room. It's easy for any kid or adult to do. I was brought up first in these churches that at their center, at their core, had unity as the thing that they preached. Now, Bill, Joe, and I are in the midst of this sermon series called Stained Glass, wondering about the many ways that God's light shines through our stained glass windows. What are these deep and abiding traditions that surround us every Sunday? And why would any person adopt one or all of these traditions as their own? So I'm preaching on the congregational window today because these early formative churches are part of my life, and they are part of the congregational church as well. So why? Why? Why should we be congregationalists? Why do we have this congregational window here in our church? I think we already are congregationalists in many ways, so try these things on for size. One, congregationalists never tightly subscribe to any one specific creed. 
that would be idolatry. But Congregationalists welcome many creeds, many confessions of faith, many hymns of faith, and many testimonies about the way that God is at work in their lives. Congregationalists hold that the local church is the church, not beholden to any governing body beyond the local. Put more eloquently, there are not many churches, but instead one church in many places. For Congregationalists, Jesus binds us together every time we gather, so no authority beyond Jesus is needed. Congregationalists emphasize the role of the laity, the ordinary person. Authority is vested in the local church. The way that looks is that they hire and fire their own ministers, they write their own doctrine and liturgy and rules for participation in worship, they own their own property, and they believe that religion is and should be voluntary, not coerced in any way. And finally, from Congregationalists, we inherit democracy itself. Government derives its legitimacy from the voluntary consent of the governed. The governors should be chosen by the governed. Rulers should be accountable to the ruled. And constitutional checks should limit both the governors and the people. Some of that will feel decidedly familiar. You could probably sign up to be a Congregationalist, I'd guess. But there are other ways, I think, that congregational heritage and history might challenge us. So in our window, in the, the, tiny, the tiny, tiny picture of a man in prison is Robert Brown, and he spent most of his life in and out of jail. He was ordained by the Church of England and then promptly burned his clergy license, claiming that his authority to preach comes not from the archbishop or the king or queen, but from God on high. And Joe, Joe and Bill might be horrified at the burning of one's clergy license. How else would you get free parking at the hospital? I think that's really the only perk of having a clergy card these days. Nobody asks for your clergy card. Kenilworth Union Church also might be horrified at the idea of their pastors being in and out of jail. Robert Brown's radical departure from the norm of his day would challenge us here where it seems that being middle of the road is not just safe, but is a foundation on which trust and unity can be forged. Robert Brown's life was nothing but safe, and he made enemies all the way to the top. And because of that, he had to flee to Holland, which is why there's the windmills on our, um, on our window. And he fled to Holland because of these radical beliefs that we really take for granted today sometimes, that church and state should be separate and that all people should have the basic right of religious freedom. So that's Robert Brown. Jonathan Edwards, too, might be familiar and foreign. He grew up about 100 years later in an, area, in an era when print media dominated, so he read anything he could get his hands on. And we might find this familiar in an era of the internet when we can take any subject and study it in depth on the internet. He delved into the theological volumes of his father's library. Bill and I hope that you all are doing that, just like John Edwards. 
he recognized also, and I think this is important for us, he recognized that the still British at the time colonies and the life of the church might need to change to meet the challenges of his rapidly changing modern life, something we can all resonate with in our own changing world. But in Edward's world, some of the fights of his day might seem a little bit foreign. Consider this, where to sit in church. Now, maybe we talk about these things, but a radical departure in his church was the ability for families to sit together instead of being separated by gender. And a seating committee then based their decision on where to assign families by social hierarchy, based first on wealth and then age and then men's youthful, use, usefulness in society. I, re I really, you know, I really liked that. I, I don't know if, if Bruce wants to propose that in our next board meeting uh, and see how that goes. Uh, Edwards might have preached against people, against these kinds of practices just a little bit that w maybe you shouldn't seek after a higher seat in God's house, but truly he fully approved of the hierarchies created by the seating committees as one of those basic ways for God's order to be upheld. Edwards was well known for his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, a sermon that many of you might be aghast to hear from any of your preachers. And fun fact for all of you Hamilton fans, Edwards was the grandfather of Aaron Burr. Henry Ward Beecher is, to me, the most surprising and delightful character in our congregational window. He f fits in interestingly with the other two. He's not quite as revolutionary as Brown, but equally as divisive. And as a theologian, he took a hard left turn from Edwards, who was 100 years his theological predecessor. In fact, Beecher's father might have been the one well-known to preach sermons like Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And so Beecher, in wrestling with the contradiction between this supposedly angry God and a gospel of, as he saw it, love, Beecher became well-known. Christ to Beecher was a friend and mentor. Salvation to Beecher was based not on God's judgment, but on God's acceptance. And people came from near and far to hear him preach at Plymouth Congregational Church in Brooklyn, taking ferries over from Manhattan, gathering in standing room only crowds of 3,000 people, seating for only 1,000 and 2,000 in the wings to hear of this love of God from the famous preacher. And at a time when most churches were silent on the issue of slavery, Beecher convinced thousands of Americans that slavery was ungodly and unchristian, a stance that made him equally beloved and controversial. His church became a massive anti-slavery engine, reportedly a stop on the Underground Railroad. He held mock auctions, which are also in our um, window, at which the congregation purchased the real freedom of slaves. One of the most famous of these slaves was a little girl named Pinky, who was auctioned off at a regular Sunday worship service. Can you imagine that? On February 5th, 1860. What this meant was that a collection was taken up of $900, 
which today would be around 20,000. And on that day, as part of the collection, a gold ring was placed in the collection plate. On the day of her liberation from slavery, Beecher presented Pinky with that ring. And then more than 60 years later, at the time of Plymouth's 80th anniversary, Pinky showed up to give the ring back to the church as a sign of gratitude for her freedom. They still have that ring today as a reminder of the work to which God calls them. So why be congregationalist? I think it is because today we still are called. We are called to remember the people who come before us, the people who came before us, who had courage and compassion, the ones who pursued life-risking work, the ones who had genuine fearlessness in the face of oppression. We are called to wonder about how God might be needing us to muster up the same courage and compassion with risk and fearlessness. As we face our 125th anniversary, who from this church do we want to come back for the 150th anniversary or the 175th anniversary? And like Pinky returning to Beecher's church so many years later, what life-changing story do we hope they might tell? Like Robert Brown and his followers, what might we risk getting arrested for? for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of God's people. Like Edwards, what might we need to think about now in order to equip our church for the changing and challenging future that is surely ahead of us? And like today's churches that claim this same congregationalist history, what ways might we be called to pursue unity, even in the face of things that truly divide us? Jesus' prayer for unity took place at the Lord's table, at the Last Supper. It was at a gathering of friends around a sacred meal, right before that challenge that Jesus faced of going out into the world of violence, the world of risk, the world that seeks to divide us. And so just as the Congregationalists did, as Brown and Edwards and Beecher before us did, we gather in sanctuary, tuned to praise God. But we also know that we must turn from this place and leave the doors of this sanctuary. We are all too aware that when we cross the threshold of this church back out into the world, we go into a world of violence, a world of risk, a world of division beyond the doors of this church. As a, as a civil rights theologian wisely said, the opposite of good is not bad. The opposite of good is indifference. It takes a deep trust in Jesus, a deep trust in God's love, a deep trust in one another to abandon indifference and to step out into the world and risk our lives for the sake of such love. In a world that seeks to divide us by race or religion, or Democrat or Republican, rich or poor, country or mother tongue, how will we do it? In a world that perpetuates violence through hotel windows onto innocent crowds, how will we do it? In a world where 
natural disasters unleash terror through storm and earthquake and storm and storm and storm. How do we do it? How do we use this place of unity to build trust so that we might be strengthened together to take risks for the sake of the gospel? The opposite of, different, the opposite of good is indifferent. The opposite of good is indifferent. With the stained glass here in this sanctuary, reflecting into our holy sanctuary such deep rivers of love, how can we not take risks together? So I will go home and sit in one of those white chairs, the ones scattered across my house, and I will ponder the Congregationalists, and I will wonder how we live up to this challenge to do good within our theological heritage. I will wonder, what does God call us to now? What does God call me to now? I will prayerfully consider how we might be called into a new future. Will you do the same? Will you ponder and pray and wonder? How does God call you? To what new challenge does God call you at this time, in this place? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.